in the origin story of a business, of a founder, of those early entrepreneurs who helped set it up and build it. There are nuggets of gold that I think stand the test of time and can be built around and added to. Um, not that you're a hostage to your past, but that you link the values and the entrepreneurial startup story of your business to the present day to help inspire the direction that you're going in the future. Hi, I'm Belded Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'm very pleased to welcome Adrian Betridge, managing partner of Baringa. Adrian, it's really great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. Maybe just to get the conversation going, I'd ask you to say a bit about yourself and also about Baringa. Of course, yeah. Well, thanks very much, Belden, for inviting me along. I'm delighted to be with you today and happy to share some personal and sort of company thoughts with you. So my name is Adrian Betridge. I'm the managing partner of Baringa. Uh, I've been in consulting for about 27 years. I always say I've never had a proper job because <laughs> I love consulting so much. It's a joy to be able to go from client to client to client to solving problems and helping them achieve their strategies. And Baringa is a global strategic advisory and transformation consulting business that supports its clients on delivering their strategy. What we do with clients is co-create the strategy with them and their teams so that it actually gets delivered because that's what we've learned how to do for ourselves and with our clients. So we call ourselves strategy executioners. So that's the space we want to play in and that's the value I think we can bring. Sure. Well, I, I think you've been there for a good while and you've also been the managing partner for a while. Maybe you just give us a sense of, you know, in the time since you've been the managing partner, sort of how the firm's developed and kind of where it's at now, just so people have a sense of the size and shape. Yeah. So I joined in 2007 to start the financial services business of Beringa, And there were about 45, 50 people in the energy consulting business when I joined. My responsibility at that time was to build a financial services advisory business, transformation business in the banks in the UK. We built that business for about 100 or so people. Then in about 2014, I got elected to be the next managing partner of the firm. There are about 250 people in the firm, 300 people in the firm when I became the managing partner. So we'd grown quite a lot over those six or so years. And now today, where are we? 2023. And we're about 2,000 plus people in the business. And so we've experienced some decent growth over the last nine years. I've been as the managing partner and we have a business of about 100 people in North America, about 75 people in Sydney and 40 people in Singapore, 100 people in Germany and in Bulgaria. But coming from a UK to international and from international to a global consulting business. And maybe you're a bit too modest, but you've got quite a number of awards. You're a B Corp. There's a few other things kind of that I'm sure you've done along the way. Yeah, I guess there are three areas that kind of stand out for me. If I look at the accolades that the firm receives, one is we've been in the great place to work 
awards in the top 10 for the last 15 years. And we've come first four times in that period of time, which is a good external recognition of the value we place on people and culture. Uh, and it's nice to see that that remains a consistent red thread through our history that people and culture are of paramount to our strategy. The second is recently, just about 18 months ago, we became a B Corp, as you mentioned, where we commit to putting sort of people and planet objectives alongside making a profit. Commitment to the environment, to community, to social good, and seeing business as a force for good allows us to have a broader set of purpose statements and drivers for why we're in business together. Uh, and that's a change we made to our partnership agreement and all the partners signed up to becoming a B Corp. So that was quite a significant milestone about 18 months ago. And then the final set of awards that you might be referencing is the indication we get from our clients through the Financial Times consulting awards about our gold medals, for the work we do in sustainability in energy. And that part of the market is recognized as we're probably the leading energy consulting firm, climate change, net zero consulting firm in the world. So quite a lot. You've really had a fabulous run. Where does purpose fit into that? Well, you know, how much has been fueling that? Where do you see yourself going? But before we even get to that, what, what would you say the organization's purpose is? Great question. I think we have uh, a very clear purpose as to why we exist. We set out to build the world's most trusted consulting firm. As a very simple sort of mission statement, the world's most trusted consulting firm, we break that down a little bit into two areas where we're looking to build trust. Trust with our employees so that they know that they can trust the leadership team of the firm, that the culture of the firm is going to support them on the building of their careers, doing interesting and impactful work so they feel not just monetarily rewarded, but their own sense of purpose and pride over the impact they're having with the client work they're doing is resonating with them. And the second trust index that we're interested in is the trust with our clients so that they know that they can turn to us. We won't be pushing a set answer from a particular technology or the latest fad or another third party. They know that they're going to get independent advice and support in executing their strategy from a team that only has their strategy and their well-being at the heart of why we've turned up. So trust with our employee base and trust with our client base is the intent and the purpose of sits underneath the drivers of our business building activities. Mm -hmm. uh, looking at your website, one of the other words that turned up a fair amount was kindness. And I'm just curious how that fits together. I mean, it doesn't seem antithetical to trust, but just curious how you see the two fitting together. Yeah, if you like, our internal statement of our values says, be kind, be curious, be great at work. If you come into our office, Belden, you'll see that on the wall, be kind, be curious, be great at work. Kindness for us is a critical value with how we treat each other inside the business. It's also manifest in our strapline from a marketing and a brand point of view that says putting people first, creating impact that lasts. 
I feel like I've just shared with you all of our slogans now, Belden. So you, you'll have to forgive me. I sound like a marketeer. Um, <laughs> but putting people first and creating impact at last is the external manifestation of our internal values, which is be kind, be curious, and be great at work. And we're running a campaign at the moment called The Economics of Kindness, helping explore from academia, from business leaders, from staff, from clients, and from customers of our clients' organizations. What role does kindness play in choosing a product, in choosing where you work, in are you loyal to a brand? Is kindness a consideration for staff, for employees, from clients in the B2B choice of who they work with. So it's a theme that we're very familiar with and try to practice as a business. And we're just pushing the envelope in some research and some campaigning around. Let's create a dialogue in the business world around what is the economics of kindness? Does it pay? How does it pay? And so that's something that you'll see on our website um, that we're running for the next six months. Mm. You may very well have come across all this in your research, but I've been intrigued by some of the work that's been done, mostly in the US, around the idea of incivility, the negative side of kindness. They're not quite, but but very similar. Obviously, I look forward to seeing what comes out of all that research you're doing. Um, if I understood it right, you sort of said that the purpose of being the most trusted maybe was there at the beginning, but it certainly sounds like it's been around for a while. How did that develop? How did that become the thing? It's really interesting because our business was born out of people leaving other consulting firms to begin with and enjoying the consulting process of solving problems for clients, but not enjoying the businesses that they worked for. So I often, sometimes in the interview process, liking it to, we created the business as an opportunity for those who loved consulting to escape the bureaucracy and the incivility of the organizations that they were working for and come to a place that would put their well-being, their personal interests, the multidimensional side of a human being, not just the hours that you're billable to a client, but we all have families, we all have lives to live, we have ups and downs. So put, have a more people-centric DNA to the organization so that we can do great work for clients, but we can look after each other in the process of doing that. We don't have to be just commercial animals and beast uh, the team to deliver a project for a client, you can actually look after your team. So it was almost originates from a rejection of the models of consulting that we saw at the time that were burning people out, unhealthy for relationships, too much time away from families. And we wanted to create a very different model for people to be able to still be consultants, but do it in a much more family, kind, people-centric manner. I clearly get the logic behind it and why that would be a driver. How did that actually all crystallize? That's a great question. So digging into our archives a little bit, the founder of the business was a gentleman called Jim Hayward. And Jim's personality resonates with the DNA of the firm of a very kind, honest, humble gentleman who wanted to look after the people that he had convinced him to join in this startup of a new consulting business, September 2000. So it didn't necessarily manifest itself in a written 
script, but it manifested itself in the DNA of the people that were there at the beginning. Now, I didn't join until seven years later, uh, and they'd grown to about 45, 50 people. But I noticed it in my interview process with the people, how supportive, fun, bright and intelligent, good at what they did, but caring and considerate for each other they were in my first exposure to that team. And during the course of the next three or four years, we started to document and crystallize those origins that happened almost authentically and naturally into words and principles that then guided the direction of the business. As actually, we've got a bit of secret sauce here. Let's write it down and let's elaborate on that and explore it together a little bit more. Why is it a secret source? Why do people want to work in a more purpose-led, people-centric consulting business? And then started to articulate that in the recruitment process and then eventually to our brand statements, which I shared with you earlier. Mm-hmm. So some people have made the argument, do you have to give up profit to be a, a kinder, you know, more human-centered organization? Either you sort of don't agree with that, or maybe you do, but you think the trade-off's worth it. I'm just curious, you know, what's your thinking and the firm's sort of thinking on that? It aligns nicely to our B Corp accreditation, Belden, because if you think about it, if you have equal drivers of people, planet, and profits, the triple bottom line, then yes, at times you have to make trade-offs because sometimes those are tensions between decisions. Am I going to host a gathering for all my people and fly them in and have a huge carbon footprint? Or am I going to run it on teams and have less carbon footprint, but potentially less impact on culture? So you are making trade-off decisions, but in the round, when you have a triple bottom line mentality, it's not that you don't want to make money. You want to make money and be profitable and commercially successful, as well as having a positive impact on people and the communities where you work and live, as well as looking after the environment and the planet in sustainable decisions that you're making. So, yes, there are in the micro some trade-offs, but in the macro, when you line those three things up, people, planet, and profits, I think you can drive a more sustainable, commercially successful, and a business that is a force for good as well. I think the micro, there are some trade-offs, but in the macro, I think you create a longer-term, more successful business. I suspect you've, at one point or another, come across, maybe even delved fairly deep into some of the academic research about the trade-offs around some of that stuff. And the best bits of it that I've seen seem to fairly conclusively come to the conclusion that you just can't tell. You know, that there's no strong evidence it works against. There's no actually strong evidence it works for. But in the face of that, I kind of think if it's not a long term, and I like your kind of macro micro distinction there, in the macro level, if we really can't tell, why wouldn't you want to be a firm that's good for people and good for the planet? You know, sort of, yeah. I could see people go, oh, well, you know, there's no way to make money in this industry unless we're horrible. But I think the evidence is that that's usually not true. Anyway, let's move on to strategy. If you had to describe the Baringa strategy, what would you say it is? Well, this is really it's quite interesting because if I think about your distinction between 
purpose and strategy, we have intentionally blurred those. And so for us, part of our purpose statement is also our strategy. If you think about putting people first, creating impact that lasts, which is the external manifestation of our values, that really is our strategy. Putting people first, creating an environment where they can do their best work, they feel supported, motivated, inspired to go and do their best work. They then go and work for clients and clients notice how they show up with great motivation, deep expertise, great content knowledge, and then make a huge impact on those clients' business, which then allows that client to make recommendations internally within their own organization and externally to other clients that they're happy to be reference points for us, which then creates momentum in our flywheel of our strategy of being commercially successful and growing. And that commercial success allows us to invest more in training, leadership development, people, expansion of our business globally, which then allows us to delight and service more clients on an international and global basis, which then leads to more profitability. So our strategy, the way we describe it internally, is a very simple flywheel. People being brilliant in that putting people first, creating impact with clients that creates commercial momentum back into this flywheel. So that's our internal definition of our strategy. People, client, commercial success. I'm just really excited about what you're saying because that's a very clear description of something that I think a lot of organizations struggle to get. I'd almost call it separate from the things most people think of as strategy, but what I sometimes describe as a theory of success. If we do this, It'll lead to that, which will in turn lead to this, which will lead back around. Now, sometimes it's not three points. Sometimes it's only two. If we do this, it'll lead to that. And that'll lead. Sometimes it's a few more. Sometimes it's more complicated. But that flywheel effect, I think, is really exciting. And I think for a lot of organizations, missing. I think most organizations actually see strategy as a, almost a demand side view of description of strategy, like let's become a billion dollar business or let's, you know, become a Fortune 100. So they're looking at a demand side lens, whereas we see demand side or the commercial bit of our flywheel as an outcome, not the input. So we have a very clear supply side strategy, not a demand side strategy, which is quite different. If the supply side strategy is, if, if I was to hire you and create an environment around you where you felt motivated, inspired, equipped with all the tools, the technology, teammates around you that you found were like pushing you to the edge of your comfort zone to do your best work. So I'm creating a supply side environment where you're performing at your best. Clients then benefit from that supply side strategy. They're like, oh my goodness, when these Baringa team turn up, they're so motivated. They know so much. They're well-researched. They've got excellent content depth and expertise and market insights that they're bringing to the table. And therefore, the clients enjoy the experience of working with us because we've got kindness at the heart of that supply side strategy dribbles over from the internal to the external and the clients notice it. And then they want more support and help on their next biggest challenge that they face. So we have a supply side strategy. Most organizations have a demand side strategy. And that's a little bit differentiating for us. And one thing that we find works at least for our business. Yeah. That 
strategy that you've described, it is sort of a macro-ish one. Back to what you were saying, you know, in the micro, often around purpose, you have to make these trade-offs. In the macro, they sort of reinforce each other. I'm just curious, I'm imagining there is, maybe not, but that there's some sort of planning process, three years, you know, slightly more uh, changes from year to year, changes as the external world shifts around, thinking about allocating resources, all that sort of stuff. How do you address that? Yeah, we have three time horizons over which we lead and manage the business. So we run an eight-year visioning exercise. So last year we launched Beringa 2030. So where do we think Beringa will be in 2030? So we have a visioning team, a leadership team, and then we engage the whole organization internally. We engage clients, we engage market experts, futurologists, we gather data and we sift through hours of pizza evenings, uh, evenings in the office, head scratching moments where we're thinking about what might the future look like there. But what's our vision for where Bringer will be in 2030? So we've just launched that inside the business last year. So Bringer 2030, an eight year time horizon. And then we operate uh, a three year strategy. Sometimes it's a three to five year strategy, depending on some of the components where we say, if that's our vision, what are the things in the next three years that we're going to go after? Is opening a business in Japan in our three-year time horizon or is it in our eight-year time horizon? It's probably not in the next three years, so, but actually scaling our business in Singapore, doubling the size of our business in Australia and the US is in our three-year time horizon. So let's allocate resources, leadership bandwidth, investment decisions around the things in our three-year strategy window. And then from the three-year strategy window, we drop down to our one-year plan. Oh, we have a plan that we commit to every February, becomes live on the 1st of April, and sees us through our financial year from 1st of April to the end of March. So a one-year plan, three- to five-year strategy, and an eight-year visioning exercise. And they're kind of like rolling artifacts and processes that we take the whole business through and share with everybody in the company. I get the rolling sense. Obviously, the annual plan you've got to redo every year, and I suspect you have a pretty good review of it at various points. But how often do you come back around again on the three-year strategy and the eight-year vision? We tend to do the eight-year vision, so it neatly falls on a five-year cycle. So we had one for 2020, 2025, 2030. So we'll do our next eight-year vision, which will take us to 2035 in 2026 and 7. So you're, you're basically running through a full strategy cycle before you're looking again at your eight-year outlook. Mm, very interesting. Has that been in place for a good while or is that kind of you've been fine-tuning it and developing it? We're always fine-tuning and developing. We're, we're consultants, Belden. We're, we're always tinkering with our own business. Of course. <laughs> and taking the best practice of what we're taking out to clients and trying to take our own medicine internally. But we wrote our first visioning paper in 2012 of where would we want to be in 2020. So that was the first time we did an eight-year vision. Before that, we had had plans, of course, through the years and some strategy documents, but we kind of locked in the 831 around 2012, so about 11 years ago. Um, so as you've been going down this road, developing both the, you know, the vision, expressing this kind of big strategy, 
thinking about your purpose, what surprised you most as you've been developing all of that? It's a great question. I guess there's two or three things that surprised me. One, there's this great phrase that I like. Most people think strategy is a cognitive exercise, but it's really as much about socialization as it is about deep thinking. And the more people that we've engaged in the process of establishing a vision or a strategy or the plan, the more likely it is to actually materialize in the real world. And sometimes some organizations, some of our clients fall into this trap of having a strategist, a really bright person who's writing great strategy papers, but the organization doesn't mirror, reflect, or look like it's actually living and breathing that strategy. So one of the things that surprised me is when we go slower on developing the vision and the strategy, we actually move faster in delivering it. That's been a really profound thing for us as a business. So we don't try and rush these processes. We engage as the new analyst who's just joined, the person who's just joined in Australia is just as involved as I might be in the shaping and the influencing and the articulation of our vision and strategy. That would be one that I think is quite an interesting insight. Two is how the results of the momentum that it drives through the organization increases that sense of ownership that everybody has for it because they can see their own voice, their own fingerprints on the deliverables. That process we've used successfully internally, we are now sharing and taking to clients. So one of the things that I've been pleasantly surprised as we've been building our business is how many of the lessons we've learned informed and make us even better at the client-facing strategy and change delivery for our clients, a really nice two sides of the same coin realization that actually we've built some great assets as a firm. We should just sell them to our clients. Mm. That's been really fun. And what's been the most difficult part, particularly that you've sort of experienced as difficult? I think the toughest bit of our execution of our strategy is moving from being a reasonably successful and fast-growing UK business to becoming global. The time difference, the cultural difference, the jumping on a plane or doing it on a team's call, hiring people through COVID in Singapore, in Chicago, in Houston, Texas, in Sydney. And so the remoteness, the time difference, the cultural differences between countries means that our repeating the model and incubating and supporting our offices around the world has been a lot harder than I ever had anticipated and has required more patience, more support, more listening to understand those cultural differences. And whilst the successful model in the UK seemed obvious to export it, because our clients wanted us to be global and help them in these different places, the building of those businesses just required a little bit more careful consideration and slowing down and patience and listening to make sure we get those things set up with a strong foundation. That's one of my most challenging personal experiences over the last seven to 10 years is helping bring it to become more global. Mm. What advice might you give to a business leader who themselves were 
thinking about their own organization's purpose and how they go about connecting that to a strategy? I think to make it as inclusive and far-reaching a listening exercise as they possibly can is not something that they should delegate to the chief strategy officer and let them just come up with the answer. They should come up with the process that delivers the answer. And the process is as important as the end deliverable. Two, reach into the DNA of the firm's history. Because in the origin story of a business, of a founder, of those early entrepreneurs who helped set it up and build it, there are nuggets of gold that I think stand the test of time and can be built around and added to. Um, Not that you're a hostage to your past, but that you link the values and the entrepreneurial startup story of your business to the present day to help inspire the direction that you're going in the future. Mm -hmm. What have you learned along the way? What might you hold out as sort of the thing that you say, you know, somewhere at some point in my career, I was this way. It sort of seemed to be working, but I've kind of learned there's this other thing. I've learned I need to do X or not do X. And you may have already touched on some of it in the answers you've given me already. It's one thing that stands out as an obvious sort of pivot point for me in terms of that aha moment, which was consulting can be quite a competitive, cognitive, intellectually stimulating environment. When I joined Anderson Consulting as an analyst straight from university, you you feel like you're both colleagues with, but slightly competing with, people inside the organization. My realization came when I joined Beringa that consulting is more fun and you will be more personally successful and deliver greater value when you play it as a team sport, not as an individual endeavor. Consulting as a team sport where your job, my job as a leader, is to create the environment where the team can be successful is so much better than people trying to be heroes on client projects or in the business. The hero mentality doesn't really sustain a growing business and isn't much fun. But consulting as a team sport, surrounding yourself with people who are better than you, who have completely different skill sets from you, who are very diverse intellectually, and all the other metrics of diversity is so important in creating a better answer for our clients and more fun and enjoyment and loyalty from your team. Mm -hmm. What haven't I asked you about that you wish I had? What haven't we touched on that would be useful or interesting to spend a few minutes on? I think one of the things that becomes obvious that we haven't touched on is how a company's purpose and its strategy live on the countenance and interaction style of your most junior people at the front line of the business out with clients, whether that's in a call center for some organizations, whether it's in a shop front or whether it's in a branch of a bank. It's really evident to me that the purpose of an organization and its strategy do trickle their way through to how people behave, their attitudes with customers and their attitudes and behaviors when dealing with clients. The moments of truth, when something goes wrong with a customer or client, 
that's when it actually becomes manifest. And so the thing I'd say about purpose and strategy is when you're getting it right, it creates a culture in an organization that means the most junior person dealing with a client issue will make a better decision, one that you would be proud of them making, but even though you're nowhere to be seen because they're living and breathing those values in those interactions with their clients and their customers. And that's true with organizations who aren't clear on purpose and strategy. That can be clear when you're interacting with them and you're trying to get a refund or you're trying to return a product or your service hasn't been what you thought it was going to be. Like it or not, your purpose and your strategy are writ large in the interactions that your clients and customers are having with your front line. Uh, and therefore, it's not fluffy. When we're talking about purpose, we're not talking about value statements chipped onto marble stuck in your entrance foyer of your business. We're actually talking about what's the cultural DNA that lives in the heart and the mind of each of your teams so that when they're interacting with your customers and clients, you're getting the kind of response that you hope and wish that they would be getting. I assume that sort of in a process of logic, that also means if you want to understand, forget what the, the clever strategist has written down or, you know, what, what a, a consulting firm's come in and told you your strategy ought to be. And I get the sense maybe that's not quite what you do. But, uh, you know, if, if you want to understand what your real strategy is, go out and see what's happening at the front line. That tells you what, what you know, kind of where, forget all the headquarters paperwork. That tells you where you really are. Yeah, I have this great... Uh sort of story that I share, I'll just, uh, if you don't mind, I'll share it very, very briefly. I was uh, hired by a client to fix a problem in their front line to do with their sales team. And I'm working with this sales team and I'm watching them and observing them doing some analysis of the processes and the tools, the culture, the performance of this sales team out in the front line of their business. Realizing that the thing that's hindering them when you go behind the scenes with that team is confused instructions, culture, feeling like if they get something wrong, they might get fired or they might miss a bonus. And so fear, culturally, it's not set up to create a high-performing sales environment for them. So then I go and investigate, why is the culture the way that is? And go and dig underneath, how did that culture get created? And I realized it was because those at head office, the way that they communicate, the way those instructions have been delivered, the leadership shadow of those leaders created that culture of fear, which created subpar performance, which those same leaders had come and asked me to go and help fix the performance. So I went back to the head office of this client, sat down with the leadership team and said, and there's some great research that we, we've done around this topic, which is leadership behaviors drive the culture of the organization, the culture drives performance you hired me to fix a performance issue the real issue is your leadership shadow how can i help you fix your leadership tone priorities communication of strategy and purpose in a way that creates a winning culture that supports the front line behaving and performing in a way that you want them to behave and so we have this phrase on our wall in the office that says, 
leadership drives culture, which drives performance. Uh, and that linkage between those three things, I think, is not well understood. And they realize often the way to fix performance out there is take a good look in the mirror with that leadership team and address some of the concerns in that leadership team. Mm -hmm. That's probably a, a pretty good note to end on. Adrian, again, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please do follow us and leave us a five-star review. It helps others find the podcast. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist. <laughs>